I hesitated for a long time in choosing the topic of this lecture. I would much rather be unveiling the solution to a long-standing bibliographical puzzle or discussing the growth and decline of a great book collection and the fate of its creator than to be waving around grubby dollar signs and talking of the commerce in books. Besides which, auctions have been talked about a plenty at books, Book Arts Press or Rare Book School lectures, which have included many worthwhile discussions of selling and buying books at auctions, how to, how not to, when to, when not to, and of the changing conditions of the book trade. Furthermore, within the well-trodden arena of days in the life talk, somehow a day in the life of a rare book curator, or better yet, a day in the life of an English country house librarian, has a nobler ring than a day in the life of an auction house slave. Finally, however, after months had gone by and I just hadn't gotten around to digging up a real topic, let alone to developing it, I had to bow to necessity and acknowledge the fact that having no time to be anything else, an auction house slave must embrace his or her condition. Having resigned myself to this fact, rationalization was the natural next step, and I thought back to what seems like a previous life to when I was young and easily awed and tried to recall what exactly then constituted my image of an auction house or of a so-called auction house expert. That term has been abandoned, at least in this country, in favor of the less potentially laughable but perhaps even more ironic designation of specialist. There are, of course, many specialists, or sometimes former specialists, <laughs> who work in auction houses, but the... <laughs> Terry! <laughs> I'm never going to get through this. <laughs> but the, the essence of working in an auction house is that one must discover the dilettante within and learn to wear many hats, and indeed to switch them off at a moment's notice. By that I mean, of course, that one must become a generalist. But to return to my rationalizations, I tried to remember what I used to think of when I thought of Christie's or Sotheby's before I knew how to pronounce the latter. I should make clear at this point that through ignorance more than choice, the following remarks will concern only these two giant auction houses, which have been lately compared to dinosaurs for all the obvious associative reasons. Well, uh, what did I think of? The image was admittedly vague. If I ever thought about it at all, I pictured well-groomed, sophisticated, dazzlingly knowledgeable young men and women taking two international calls at a time, racing to catch planes, hobnobbing with the rich and famous. Later, when I'd actually glanced through a few auction catalogs, I imagined the same young men and women racing through piles of books, performing peculiar feats of occasionally slap-happy high-speed cataloging. Finally, still later, having actually read through some auction catalogs, these images were modified, and I was left with a bewildering impression of eclectic scholarship combined with, or sullied with, I wager some of you are thinking, as I undoubtedly did, uh, laced with monetary savviness. Having mused along these lines, I therefore considered the possibility that perhaps a flavor of the goings-on within a book department of one of the major auction houses, a very brief comparison of the Anglo-American auction system with its major European counterparts in Germany and France, and a few remarks on recent developments in the book trade, and only parenthetically the, the manuscript trade, might not be devoid of interest for those of you who share my former innocence of these things. I, I'm assuming from the outset that you're all familiar with uh, the basic principles governing auctions in this country which, uh, and in Britain, which are simply that property is consigned to us by the seller who pays a commission to the auction house that can vary between 15 or 20 percent for lesser value property and zero percent, but which averages, I would think, between 6 and 10 percent. 
I actually tried to sit down and describe hour by hour a typical day in my life at Christie's, but by the end I was practically as weary and frazzled from simply enumerating all the constant interruptions and phone calls as I am at the end of the day. All I can do then, in hopes of sparing you the same nervous fatigue, is to try to evoke the sources of the constantly varying cocktails of boredom, delight, and sense of peril that characterize working in the rare books department of an auction house and that make the work both utterly exhausting and addictive. Part one is boredom. The invasiveness of the phone is an annoyance afflicting all modern offices, but in an auction house one is perhaps even more vulnerable than most to the hectic, jarring, jagged quality of modern life because part of the auction house ethic is that a live or even half a live specialist sh should, <laughs> as far as human, and we are often half alive, should as, as far as is humanly possible always be available to respond to inquiries. We are a service industry with a vengeance, and indeed people often confuse us with their local public library of whose, of whose existence we conscientiously remind them. Even among the dozens of legitimate inquiries that we receive every day, however, the majority relate to books or manuscripts that are of insufficient value for us. Because of the high costs of running a multi-million dollar corporation, and because of the competitive nature of the business, the yawning maws of a creature called minimum lot value, which increases constantly and now hovers at Christie's at around four to $5,000, demand constant sacrifices in the form of interesting books referred elsewhere and manuscripts, whether to a dealer or to another auction house. I wouldn't wish to calculate the percentage of each day that we spend explaining to people why their books are not appropriate for sale at Christie's. No matter how pleasant we try to be, there are always some people who perceive this as snobbery, whereas we, we are really just practicing the great capitalist virtue of bowing or curtsying to the bottom line. I must specify that of the four major book departments in the, in the big auction houses, that is Christie's and Sotheby's in London and New York, I think the Christie's New York book department is probably the most susceptible to this problem since our London office has a branch in South Ken Kensington that has its own book department for lesser value books and manuscripts. And both Sotheby's in London and to a lesser extent Sotheby's in New York sell books and manuscripts belonging to a broader value range than we tend to do, principally because they have traditionally had larger staffs and more storage and exhibition space. Christie's in New York does have a second branch called Christie's East, but they don't have a book, which handles lesser value property, but they have no book department. Also, we constantly make exceptions to this minimum lot value, which is really a guideline for the average value per lot that we need to maintain in order to keep afloat, so to speak. We usually will sell books or manuscripts of lesser value, anywhere from $500 to $3,500, if the consigner is also selling high-value property. When you see a group of more moderately priced books than usual in one of our sales, you can be almost certain that the seller is also consigning or being encouraged to consign some important, i.e. high-value property, to our own department or to another department at Christie's. The latter situation of our selling lowish value books for big clients of other departments only occurs when the client is particularly important or particu particularly rich and fussy and requires the application of a bit of pressure or arm twisting from the department in question and from, or from top management. Otherwise, or so we tend to imagine, our sales would be flooded with junk. What we call junk, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Finally, occasionally we will take in a book or manuscript of modest value just because it is interesting or unusual. An antique dealer walked in last spring, for example, with an okay copy of one of Dard Hunter's books, Primitive Papermaking, 1927, which is a nice book but nothing special. 
But he also had with him a little anti-slavery pamphlet called, quote, The Mirror of Misery or Tyranny Exposed, which was printed in New York by Samuel Wood in 1807. Sexto Decimo, stitched in its original wrappers and illustrated with some eloquent little woodcuts showing slave ships and cruel treatment of slaves. Because of its rarity, there were three copies in National Union Catalog, its early date for an anti-slavery pamphlet, and general attractiveness, I took the pamphlet in, planning to estimate it at around $700 to $900. This was guesswork, since no copies were recorded in the auction records. The consensus in the department was to be even more careful, so the estimate was brought down to $500 to $700. But no one disputed the fact that in spite of such a low estimate, which is way below our so-called minimum lot value, this piece was a worthy addition to our sale. As it turned out, several bidders agreed with us and the pamphlet sold for $1,700. A hammer, all the prices I quote will be hammer. That's not including the buyer pre buyer's premium. That's how we usually do it. Occasionally, occasionally we vary the grind of dealing with what we call VSV inquiries, that is letters or phone calls concerning books of very small value, by creating little sideshows. For example, I share an amazingly small and cramped office with our manuscripts and Americana specialist, Chris Coover, who's also a Columbia graduate, I should mention, and we have designated our door an official gallery of horrors which we reserve for only the most eye-catching photos of all those sent to us by an earnest and hopeful public. <laughs> to qualify, the dismembered or gnawed book should preferably be resting on a brightly flowered sofa or on a car hood or next to a vase of plastic tulips <laughs> or should be posed between its owner's pink sneaker-clad feet. <laughs> we get lots of these. My favorite shows a sweet-faced old man standing next to a locked safe, holding an apparently disbound beetle-sized book in his palm and smiling beatifically. <laughs> I sort of look at him for reassurance every now and then. <laughs> Another kind of dullness can be generated by the cataloging of routine books. Because there's a steady market for certain not uncommon books, for example, color-plate books like the octavo editions of Audubon's Birds and Quadrupeds, they come up very regularly, and cataloging them can get downright boring. A spell of this kind of book, or of press books, for example, can be deadly. I'm sorry, my apologies to any fine printing aficionados in the audience, but certain kinds of press books, namely the more traditional ones, um, Kelmscott, Griganog Press, Golden Cockerel Press, etc., are utterly predictable in their contents and even in their special features and are furthermore by tradition self-described, so there's little challenge in describing them. They can make even the hardest core printed book fetishist pant for the nearest manuscript. The best quick remedy for this kind of boredom is a good movie, and the second best usually contains alcohol, as everybody here knows. <laughs> Finally, one of the more burdensome aspects of working for a major auction house, or I suppose any auction house, is that one is on call for the auction house. It's one thing to travel to get property for your own department. It's another thing to travel under orders. Um, at any moment, and usually at the height of a cataloging crush, or whenever one is feeling that the amount of work is interfering with such natural processes as breathing, one can be ordered by the draconian head of the Estates and Appraisals Department to drop everything and board a, a, a plane for Palm Beach or Newport to go spend a day or two listing used books in the musty library of a frighteningly rich blue-haired dowager as part of a concerted effort to coax a few million-dollar paintings out of her. These are the moments when the prospect of one of these excursions is demonstrated to be inevitable, that one lays one's head on one's desk in a faint, although the reminder is salutary that in the general scheme of things, that is, within the overall context of the auction house, the books and manuscripts department is a mere frill.
only a little less so than the stamps department or the clocks and watches department. Except for the occasional Audubon elephant folio Gutenberg Bible or undiscovered Lincoln manuscript, we do not supply the company's bread and butter, or even its mineral water. <laughs> it, is, it is we who are eating off the auction house's table. This is brought home to us regular, every day. That's the end of boredom. I'll get into something else. Delights. Work, working in an auction house differs from working in a major research or rare books library and is similar to the rest of the book trade in that in general, even at higher levels in the hierarchy, auction specialists in every area usually remain constantly exposed to the objects that are the raison d'etre of their job. Even the heads of departments very often continue, I would think usually continue to participate in cataloging, though sometimes they only do so for exceptionally important lots. In fact, it would be dangerous, even if it were possible, to lose this contact with the material, in this case the books, because if the generalist slash specialist's expertise resides in anything, it is in knowing or being able to figure out quickly the value of the book at hand. And the only way to obtain and to maintain that expertise is through a long, steady accumulation of experience handling many different kinds of books. In spite of the constant interruptions of the phone, we do occasionally manage to accomplish some cataloging. Most of, this find, most of us find this one of the most satisfying aspects of our work. I don't need to extol the pleasures of studying describing rare and interesting books to this audience, but I'd like to expand a bit on my earlier assertion that one is forced to be a generalist when working in an auction house, especially, of course, in a smaller department. This wouldn't be the case in Sotheby's London Book Department, for example, which really does have a, a wide range of specialists. I've worked at Christie's since January 1991, and have cataloged since then a great many different kinds of books and manuscripts, including early printed books in many areas from the most obscure theological tracts to common and expensive incunables like the Nuremberg Chronicle or Hypnerata Machia Polyphilia. We've had three in the two and a half years I've been there, and they always make money. Many natural history color plate books, including lots of ornithological books, hundreds of pounds worth of John Gould, for example, um, architectural books from the 16th to the 19th centuries, atlases and maps, and books containing maps, mainly early books of discovery and exploration, 20th century fine press books, fine bindings, sporting books, printed Americana, medical books, and other books important in the history of science. I've also cataloged playing cards, broadsides, historical documents, and lots and lots of letters from Lafayette to Freud to Frank Lloyd Wright to Bolivar to Malcolm X and so on. I'd love to go on about the several most instructive, enthralling, or simply beautiful items that I've worked with at Christie's, like a Jan van Loon composite sea atlas circa 1665-1670, sold in December 1991 for $24,000, or a first edition of Champlain's Voyages, 1613, sold in October 1991 for $90,000, um, as part of the sale of Pierre S. Dupont III's collection of navigation and voyages, which was a great sale collection, or a set of five hand-colored view plans by Baptista Boazio illustrating towns visited by Sir Francis Drake on his raiding voyage to the West Indies in 1585 to 86, which brought the highest price in that same sale at $210,000. But I won't go on because it, it would take all evening. We usually do our cataloging under a certain amount of pressure, and either because of this or some would think in spite of this, we try in order to work most efficiently as well as to to stay sane, to tackle groups of related books in a logical sequence. Um, we don't just go jumping from a 16th century illustrated book to a set of A.A. Milne first editions, <clears throat> although the arrangement of our catalog sometimes makes it look as though we do. 
The more substantial the group of books, the more interesting it is to catalog them, even if one is at the outset not particularly interested in the type of book in question. In fact, and again, I don't need to, to say this to you, but it's really, I find it's, it's so important. Um, the pleasure of cataloging one good book and the amount that it can teach one is multiplied exponentially by cataloging a good book that's part of a good collection. This is not unrelated to an important phenomenon of which most people who are unfamiliar with auctions are not aware, which is the fact that the same book will fetch a higher price if sold in the context of a collection than when it appears on its own in a general sale. And this is true whether the collection is a little known or even unknown collection of books in the same subject area or a group of miscellaneous books from the library of a noted bibliophile. This is a crucially important factor in estimating the auction value of a book or manuscript, and we have to explain it to people over and over again when they have inflated ideas of the values of their books based, for example, on what they heard about the price fetched by a copy from the Doheny sale or the Bradley Martin sale. We never base estimates on prices from the Martin sale in particular, which are often, in fact, which were two or three times higher than our high estimates even today three or four years later, it was a spectacular sale. I'll come back to this. To get back to collections, the, the experience of working with a fine collection of books is what makes working in an auction house worth all the late nights and aggravations, as far as I'm concerned. In the two and a half years that I've worked at Christie's, we've sold three book collections, Stuart Schimmel's collection of 20th century fine printing and the book arts, the PRS DuPont collection that I just mentioned, of travel and navigation, and most recently, and in many ways the most impressive of the three, an anonymously consigned collection of early printed herbals and medical books. This collection, the dispersal of which took place last October, included almost all the principal 15th and 16th century printed herbals and multiple editions of the most important ones, many in their original bindings and with contemporary, or probably not original, but mostly original bindings and with contemporary hand coloring. For example, there were two editions of Conrad von Megenberg's Buch der Natur, which was the first encyclopedic survey of, of the natural world to be printed in the vernacular and was also the first <coughs> printed book to contain both botanical illustrations and figures of animals. There were five editions also of each of the three great 15th century herbals, the Herbarius Latinus, the Gauter Gesundheit, and the Hortus Sanitatis. And these were just the, the major 15th century herbals in the collection. There were also the went through to about 1560. I cataloged the 43 herbals in chronological order, and if I'd had no reference books whatsoever, nothing but those books in front of me, I would still have been able to clearly trace the radical transformation of botanical illustration that occurred between 1475 and 1550. In other words, this was an extraordinarily coherent and comprehensive collection of historically important books, important from many points of view, as books are wont to be. It was created in the 1920s and 30s, and would, of course, be virtually impossible to duplicate today, and cataloging it was an exceptional experience, especially in 1992, as opposed to, say, 1952 or 62, when one still came upon such things occasionally. The prices realized in this sale were indicative of, of a phenomenon that can sometimes surprise one. The rarest books do not necessarily realize the highest prices in relation to their estimates. The most striking example, in my opinion, was that of the first edition of the Hortus Sanitatis, Mainz, 1491 which is the third and broadest in scope of the three great 15th century herbals and is often described as the most important medical book to have been printed before the 16th century. While very rare on the market, this was the first copy to appear at auction since 1967, and that copy lacked eight leaves. There are many copies in libraries and private collections in the United States and in Europe. 
Nonetheless, our copy sold for twice the high estimate. It sold at $70,000, and it was not even in a binding. It was discount. I found this significant as it shows that rarity is not at all the only factor contributing to the desirability and value of a book. Although the rarer herbals in the sale did well, in fact, did very well given the economic context, none of the extremely rare herbals, I mean those of which fewer than 10 or 12 copies are known, um, of which there were several examples, none did as well as this one in relation to the, the estimate. Um, the copy of the first edition of Fuchs's um, De Historia Stirpium Basel 1542 is another example. It sold at 25,000, uh, it sold at $70,000, which again was twice the high estimate. I was rather surprised by these results, but I think that showed more my inexperience than anything else because this is a phenomenon that one sees often, which is that the better known books are, have, there are more bidders for the better known books, even if they're maybe historically less interesting um, than, than uh, other more obscure books. Not that these books that I just mentioned were historically less interesting, but they certainly weren't as rare. Um, Rarity, historical interest, and value simply do not always coincide, and they come in infinite and ever-changing combinations. I have with me, by the way, a copy of the catalog for anybody to look at after the sale, after the talk, if they wish. <laughs> Whoops. As I also brought with me um, a catalog of a fairly recent Sotheby's New York sale that I think is worth taking a look at as an example of the best that an auction house can offer which is very good indeed, and which can only be the work of a real specialist, my earlier remarks notwithstanding, who's sitting in the audience. This was Sotheby's um, December 12, 1991 sale of 45 incunables from the Shoyan collection. And I have them right here. Um, there's a there is a pervasive image of the auction house as the villainously destructive agent of the demise of great collections, of scavenging scavenging flocks of auction vultures swooping down on the bereaved relatives of the freshly dead. This is an exaggeration. Certainly, collections are dispersed under the gavel. However, the kinds of collections that are sold at Christie's and Sotheby's these days are almost never the kinds of historically intact libraries of, or parts of libraries that should absolutely be kept together and that make it possible for scholars like Nicholas Pickwood to do pioneering research into the production of, of books, whether it be printing history or binding history, whatever. The dispersal of country house libraries in England did often spell the end of such invaluable collections. There are few of those left, however, and the collections that we do sell are almost, were almost always brought together by rare book collectors of the 20th century and, include, um, and do not include considerable quantities of books in their original condition as far as bindings go. In these circumstances, it is it has often been argued, and I think I agree with this, that the ecosystem of the circulation of books depends on this dynamic, the dispersal and coming together of collections through time. Admittedly, it is no longer possible, at least not at the present time, to create certain kinds of collections like the one I just described. But like in anything else, there's only life in book collecting where there's movement and change. A great many collectors are vividly conscious of these realities and don't want their collections to be perpetuated. They themselves valued the thrill of the hunt so highly that they wished to bequeath that thrill and not its accumulated results to posterity. Others wished to begin collecting in new areas and enjoy watching their peers fighting over the choicest bits in their collections. Collections of living collectors come up regularly at auction. In the past two years, we've sold two fairly major ones, and not for reasons of urgent financial need or bankruptcy. 
I'm referring to Stuart Schimmel's collection, which I mentioned before, and to Mr. and Mrs. Harry Spiro's collection of important American historical manuscripts and documents. The Shoyen collection was another example of this. The collector wished to begin concentrating exclusively on medieval manuscripts, so he sold his printed books. One more word on auction catalogs and the evolution in cataloging style. There can be a fine line between erudition and hype. A philosophy of restraint reigns at Christie's, at least in the book department. We try to provide objective descriptions and to give the facts rather than to hawk our wares. We don't mention the assets of a copy unless it is really unusually fine. Usually just the defects are mentioned. In the same spirit, we also try to avoid excessive verbiage. This can be a point of contention. Some of us argue for a bit of explanation in the view that it makes our catalogs more interesting and more useful for the less informed client or the new collector, while others refer to this as the hot air style of cataloging and argue for a certain purity of style under the assumption or the hope that our clientele is still knowledgeable enough not to need lengthy explanations of the significance of most books. Of course, our approach varies from catalog to catalog depending on the type of sale. A single owner sale of an important subject collection will benefit from more in-depth cataloging than isolated copies of the same books. Nonetheless, it is certainly safe to say that in the past 10 or 15 years, cataloging at Christie's and Sotheby's has changed in the direction of supplying much more explanation and more detail. In an increasingly competitive market, the auction houses are trying to appeal to a greater variety of dealers as well as directly to collectors. That is all in all to a wider and less specialized audience than they used to, although the actual bidders at auction are still mostly dealers. Hence the evolution in cataloging and advertising techniques. These changes in turn reflect and are part and parcel of changes in the market for rare books and manuscripts. And just like changes in the art market or the rare book market, changes in cataloging style are to a certain extent cyclical. In the 30s and 40s, descriptions were much more elaborate than they later were. The, the A. Edward Newton and Frank Hogan catalogs, um, 1941 and 1945, contain good examples of very detailed cataloging. The, it, a lot depends on the kind of book. Those, those collections were, were literary in content. But take, for example, two great scientific collections that were sold in the 70s and early 80s at Sotheby's. The Harrison K. Horblet Library sold in 1974, no, yeah, sold in 1974, sold in part up to the letter G. Horblet had second thoughts and kept the rest. <laughs> the hun and the Honeyman Collection, which is, was a wonderful collection, sold from 1978 to 81. Those catalogs would certainly be a lot thicker if we were lucky enough to be producing them today. <clears throat> Finally, one of the more satisfying aspects of working in an auction house is being able to see the process through from start to finish. Finding good books, persuading the owners to consign them to your own venue, as they say, cataloging them, letting the right people know about them, and seeing them sell. It's a sort of satisfying game. As everyone knows who has ever attended more than one auction, one's not enough because on the surface they can be fairly stultifying. The auction method of selling is a game or a spectacle. Comparing auctions to theater is the oldest cliche in the book, but attending an auction in an area with which one is somewhat familiar is like watching the market being acted out in a sort of symbolist play. In fact, the entire process leading to a sale is a perfectly contained ritual enactment of the act of commerce, and the auction itself is just the conclusion of that act. Lest I sound too ethereal, let me assure you that I have never but never heard anybody busy at work within an auction house express themselves in such terms. But I think that most would, would agree that there is a strong element of art or sport in the auction process as a whole. There used to be a certain amount of tricky playing, too. One can read, for example, with a large grain of salt, 
the bilious stories of Charles Hamilton in his book Auction Madness, published in 1981, in which he relates various tales of auction house deviousness or outright deception of their clients, mostly cases of half-truths as opposed to untruths. But in the 12 years since this was written, the major auction houses have become much more strictly regulated, whether as a, as a result of this or because of the fact that since the institution of the buyer's premium, which started in 1975, it's a commission that the buyer pays, we are now more than ever jointly responsible to both the consigner and the purchaser. Whatever the reason, there is a strong sense of ethics reigning at the major auction houses, and the practice mentioned by Hamil Hamilton simply no longer occur. One that used to occur, for example, and in fact once got Christie's into a lot of trouble, it happened to be 1981 also, was the practice of not identifying unsold lots. This is no longer permitted by the Consumer Affairs Department of New York. I'm not sure what regulations hold in other states. In the past, fictitious buyers' names were even invented for the buy-ins, the, the unsold lots. Not only would the auctioneer call out these made-up names during the sale, sold to Mr. Green in the back row or on the telephone or whatever, but they were published in the price lists. In London, buyers' names were until very recently listed, in fact, on the official price result forms. None of this happens anymore. But no matter how properly we comport ourselves, a sense of impending doom afflicts the auction house slave at times. This can occur at any given moment. Before a catalog deadline, the photo department has lost half of the transparencies for one's catalog, or an important client has decided to consign a dozen important and complex early printed books, well, we wish that would happen actually, 24 hours before the deadline, and he or she must not be denied so one is faced with the prospect of staying up for the next two nights or it can occur shortly before a sale. Your estimate for a certain book seems to have been too high, no one has shown any interest in the lot. Or a consigner can be changing his or her mind about the reserve and insisting that he or she won't sell the book for less than a price that happens to be higher than the low estimate, a practice that is now illegal. An important consigner of impressionist paintings can call up in a rage because the low value books that one has been obliged to include in one's sale have not been illustrated in the catalog and so on and so on. The worst is when it occurs after a sale. A leaf in an early printed book is proven by the buyer to be a diabolically skillful facsimile. Or a copy from a library in Outer Mongolia of an extremely rare and early book turns out to have had a leaf that yours lacked, a fact that you were unaware of having been so pressed for time in cataloging the book. These kinds of cataloging errors are what we call returnable faults. By our terms of sale, if any text or illustration that is known to be part of the edition described is missing, this fact must be mentioned in our catalog descriptions. If, if it's not mentioned, the book can be returned. In theory, even the loss of a single letter through a wormhole could be sufficient cause of a return if undescribed. This can be a headache, but it is in the area of manuscripts, and lately historical manuscripts in particular, that facsimiles and forgeries are a real problem. It has been estimated, for example, that at least 20% of the Lincoln letters and signed documents on the market are fakes. Nevertheless, very in fulfilling one's responsibilities to both the seller and the buyer, which is the function of the auction house, and which consists in producing an accurate and reasonably informative catalog, one is also fulfilling a less immediate but in the long run equally important responsibility to the preservation of history. From a less elevated point of view, no experience is a waste in this business, as it's practically impossible to not learn something from the cataloging of a sale. Similarly, when books fail to sell, you're learning something important, if not particularly uplifting, about the market. But before discussing the present not particularly uplifting market, I'd like to highlight some of the special characteristics of Anglo-American book auctions by briefly 
just describing very brief, briefly the, the different structures of the other major Western book auction houses in France and in Germany. German auction houses have traditionally functioned on a different basis from French and Anglo-American auctions. The German houses are themselves dealers to a greater or lesser extent. They've purchased a lot of the property that they sell. This practice has now, of course, become a regular occurrence here in the form of so-called guarantees or advances to consigners, a method of attracting, attracting property that was first openly practiced by Sotheby's and then quite a bit later by Christie's, but is still the exception rather than the rule. In Germany, rather than there being one or two major auction houses, there are many in the various major cities. The German catalogs are dense, thick and fat, printed in tiny type, containing no-nonsense, highly condensed scholarship. The book and manuscript sales are gargantuan by Anglo-American standards, usually con including up to three to 5,000 lots. Although they do often, the autograph and manuscript sales do often include prints and watercolors, works on paper that are handled by separate departments at Christie's and Sotheby's. According to some dealers, Germany is one of the most re rewarding places to buy books lately. The French system is, like many French institutions, antiquated and complex and proud to be. Also, like many French institutions, it dates from the 18th century. The, the nearest equivalent to auction houses are the firms called études, comparable to law practices whose numbers are restricted and which must be purchased when they fall vacant by so-called commissaires priseurs, who belong to the compagnie des commissaires priseurs, a guild or union holding a government monopoly. To complicate matters further, the cataloging and appraisal work done within each étude is carried out by outside experts, experts government certified, of course, who are often book dealers, and an ex-bail can and does work for several études. Each étude must rent out the halls it uses for auctions from the Hotel Drouot, which is a kind of government-managed auction center, for lack of a better word. To become a commissaire priseur, one must be French, of course, and have passed <laughs> a government examination and served an apprenticeship. It's the old guild system, which also still regulated many aspects of the printing and publishing trades until relatively recently. There have been stirrings of revolt against this system during the past 10 years, but change is slow and there are many vested interests in the old system. The catalogs that emanate from the Hotel Drouot's various expertise vary greatly in quality, just like auction catalogs in this country. Some are free with hyperbole, while others, most, contain restrained, informative, and accurate descriptions. The one thing these French catalogs do seem to have in common, however, is a great deal of attention paid to the book's sartorial elegance. All in all, France is not an easy place for the outsider to buy or sell. Christie's and Sotheby's have both been long trying to get a toehold in there, so far with little success. Things are simpler over here. Uh, in the, uh, the basic principles, which I mentioned earlier, of the, of the auction house acting as agent for the consigner have not changed much and haven't changed at all in the past 10 years, but a lot of other things have, namely in the market for rare books at auction. The following remarks will relate principally to trends in the United States auction market. In spite of the new ease in worldwide communications, there is as yet no uniform international market for books. And even between New York and London, there are differences not only in what kinds of books we sell, but also what kinds of price levels are reached by the same kinds of books. The era, the era of the old boys, the wealthy white males, while not yet over, is to a certain extent on the wane. By that I mean that there's a greater variety of types of book collectors and of kinds of collections than 20 or 30 years ago. However, there has also occurred during the past three years an apparently steadily more restricted supply of money, which has tightened a vice around the rare book trade. 
This phenomenon has been taking place concurrently with the rise of a handful of American autograph collectors who have driven that market through the roof, straight through to the stratosphere. To backtrack a bit, the rare book market has changed enormously during the past three decades. During the 60s and early 70s, institutional buying accounted for up to 60% of purchases from dealers, according to a survey, and I think that includes auction also, according to a survey carried out by Gordon Ray, the great collector and Pierpont Morgan Library benefactor. As most of you are well aware, enormous sums were spent during this period by North American institutions, who often created special collections from scratch by purchasing large specialized collections, which they then built upon through, f through further acquisitions. It was a seller's market. In the 70s, as institutional buying slowed down, private collectors came to dominate the market. In the early 80s, a slight recession was felt in the trade and in the auction houses, a foretaste of the big recession of the 90s, before the 80s, capital E got underway. In the mid-80s, the influx of new money began to inflate prices. The most extreme examples of this could be seen when individuals who had suddenly acquired a huge amount of money bought like crazy, causing prices for books or manuscripts in their collecting area to soar. As soon as they ceased buying, however, the distorted market for those books would almost inevitably collapse. This phenomenon manifested itself, for example, in the market for modern bindings, French artist books, and certain categories of press books, largely due to the activities of two private collectors. We've seen the same kind of hyperinflation take place recently, as I intimated a moment ago, in the market for American historical autographs. Two heavyweight dealers, one of whom is bidding almost, almost exclusively on behalf of a single collector, have sent prices skyrocketing during the past two years. The cardinal rule at auction is that it only takes two bid bidders to give prices little wings. The ball hasn't dropped yet, but the only bets that are on relate to when, not whether, it will do so. In the latter half of the 80s, the last two great collections that anyone will see at auction for a long time or is likely to see in any context other than institutional were sold one after the other. These were the libraries of Estelle Doheny, sold through Christie's from October 1987 through May 1989, and of H. Bradley Martin, sold through Sotheby's from June 89 through June 1990. Both collections were encyclopedic in scope and both consisted of numerous sub-collections rather than a miscellaneous concatenation of high spots. The Doheny collection included a copy of the Gutenberg Bible that sold in October 87 for $5.4 million, the still unbroken world record for a printed book. I think that might be including premium, excuse me. I'll take 10% off that. Count, sorry, get confused here. Countess Doheny had also collected a splendid array of rare and important early printed books and medieval manuscripts as well as English and American literature, fine bindings, a Kelmscott Press collection, and wonderfully diverse collections of Western Americana, Voyages, voyages and Travels, uh, important illustrated books, American historical documents, and so on. Her library sold for a grand total of over $34,400,000. Bradley Martin's massive collection focused mainly, though far from exclusively, on English, American, and French literature and ornithological books, including a copy of the first elephant folio edition of Audubon's Birds of America, sold in June 89, that held the world record at $3.6 million until April 1992, when Edinburgh University's copy was sold for $3.7 million at Christie's New York. The Martin sale grossed a total of over $32 million. I find these figures mind-boggling whenever I read them. On the heels of the Doheny and Martin sales, rare books not surprisingly began to be vaunted in certain circles as the great investment of the future. 
actually an old and naggingly recurring myth, just as American autographs are now. Certain factors that pushed up the prices of these sales were virtually ignored by these profits of profit. Not only the economic situation as a whole, but the role of the book's context. That is, the fact that they belonged to truly great collections, probably the last of the great universal, universal collections, a la Houghton or Ho. Two other blockbuster sales that were held during this period in New York tended to confirm this view of the investment value of rare books. Although these were of smaller and much more recent collections, they can be mentioned in the same breath as the Doheny and Martin collections, or almost mentioned, because of the fairly general nature of the collections and because, mainly because of the prices fetched at auction. The first was the collection of Haven O'More's establishment, or Center of Divine Light, the Garden Limited, sold at Sotheby's New York in November 1989. All of these books had been purchased since 1974 and had been chosen as exemplars of, I quote, supreme works of the mind. The quote is from O'More's 10-page preface to the catalog entitled On the Mystery of the Book, <laughs> which has to be the most vaporous, vacuous piece of original prose ever to appear in an auction catalog. <laughs> in this sale, and two years later, in that of businessman Richard Manny's even more recently amassed collection, also sold at Sotheby's, which consisted principally of American and English literature, mainly 19th to 20th century, with a few very high spots from other areas and earlier periods, Sotheby's won their gamble of lavishing big bucks on advertising, catalog production, and advances. In the garden sale, the prices ranged from high to astronomical, and Manny's shiny new collection also did well, with a notable exception of his set of the four Shakespeare folios, which happened to be the garden copy, for which Manny had paid $1.9 million in the garden sale, but which failed to make the $1.5 million low estimate and probable reserve in his own sale. The Manny sale is generally considered to have been the last hurrah of the 80s. It's been a long, slow trek back to reality since that time. The prices fetched in these spectacular sales, as well as in a few single owner sales of more specialized collections that were held in London or Monaco from 1987 through 1990, are a fi are far cry from current price levels. I'm referring to the, uh, the specialized sales of the Janson collection of hunting and ornithological books, the de Belder collection of botanical books, Henry Blackmer's library books on the Levant, the George Abrams collection of fine printing, all sold through Sotheby's between 87 and 89, and the Kistner collection of books on Rome, which was sold in October 1990 through Christie's. The Kistner collection was a particularly sad dispersal, which only occurred after Christie's vain efforts to sell it on block. As I mentioned before, when we formulate auction estimates, we basically have to ignore the prices achieved in all of these sales, or at least we have to water them down. And we must now do this not only when valuing different copies of books sold in these sales, but when valuing the copies themselves when they cross our paths. <clears throat> there have been several cases lately of Doheny or Martin or Janson copies selling for half or even less than half what they made in the named sales. In fact, we now base our estimates for many kinds, if not most kinds of books on pre-1989 prices. <clears throat> the market for printed books has been recently, and at least in this country, what is called soft. The area most dramatically affected by the recession during the early 90s has been literature, which was also the first to go during the 81-82 recession with prices often falling back to well below their pre-89 levels. In the New York sales, less so in London, there's been a notable falling off of interest in literary books and manuscripts, except for the occasional high spot. The prices for nearly all kinds of books have either ceased increasing or have increased far more slowly than the rate to which one had become accustomed, which of course feels like a drop in the market. 
from the 60s through the 80s, it was possible to basically count on books doubling in value every five years. We can't do that anymore. Run of the mill or even interesting but less than spectacular 15th and 16th century printed books, general illustrated books of all periods, and fine bindings, for example, are finding fewer bidders or none at all. Although anything to do with the sciences is still sought after, color plate natural history books, for which the market still appeared very healthy a year ago, have also been slipping slightly during the past two seasons. There simply is not enough money to keep up with the quantities of books on the market at the prices that the books are still expected to bring. It's been an uneasy time for the book trade all in all. Old hands are well aware of the cyclical nature of the book and art market and can to a certain extent take the present slump in stride. What is distressing to many of them, as well as to their less seasoned colleagues, is that the cri de guerre, the rallying cry of the 90s, seems to be not even the old, is it beautiful or is it important, but can I hang it on my wall? Some collectors, for example, are hot to acquire one-page Lincoln or Washington letters with exceptionally fine or large signatures. They turn their noses up at, at historical archives, which institutions would be buying if they were buying anything at all. Other collectors with whom I personally feel a bit more sympathy are fond of maps. One of the few areas in printed books to be thriving is that of atlases and travel books or books of early exploration containing maps. Although these are, cer are certainly not exclusively purchased by breakers, there's a lot of that going on. Just walk through any book fair and check out the map dealer's stalls. You might meet a lot of old friends separated from their bindings, their text, and their brother and sister maps. Color plate books are the other main victim of these practices. A more recent phenomenon noticeable this spring has been that the top lots, the very highly priced lots, haven't been selling. In other words, there's been some difficulty in predicting the current market value of these very high value pieces which doesn't mean, by the way, that we sway passively in the changing winds of the market. If we know, for example, that a book has a certain relative value, we will not try to persuade its consigner to bring it down below that relative value just because the market seems unlikely to support it. Instead, we'll either decide to try to persuade the market to support it, or if the case seems hopeless, we will advise the owner to hold on to it for a few more years if possible. But within that relative value or value range, there is room for reasonable adjustments of our estimates in accord with the current climate. The trouble is that it is not at all a simple matter to gauge that climate. In our June 9th sale in New York, for example, we failed to sell the top lot estimated at $300,000 to $500,000, an exquisite and very unusual early 16th century specimen of work by the great Renaissance miniaturist Simon Benning. It was unusual because it consisted of um, 11 full-page illuminations from, a, from an uncompleted or incomplete rosarium um, showing part of the cycle of the passion. Some of them were missing, some from the cycle were missing. With fine illuminated initials on the facing pages, all entirely ruled but had no text. Um, it could have been a model book or part of one, but no one has yet come up with an irrefutable explanation for what it was. Uh, at Christie's in London on June 23rd, the two top lots in a very impressive sale of quote, what they call highly important printed books and manuscripts did not sell. These were both the kinds of books one is lucky to see once in a lifetime. The first was a copy on vellum of Antoine Verrault's Chronique de France, printed in Paris in 1493. One of three known complete copies, sumptuously illuminated by artists from Verrault's atelier, the two others being both in the Bibliothèque Nationale. It was estimated at 500,000 to 700,000 pounds and failed to sell. The other book was another little nothing, Caxton's translation of Raoul Lefebvre's of the Histories of Troy, printed in Bruges in 1473 or 74, which was the first book printed in English. 
and the first book printed in William Caxton's first printing shop. This was a fairly complete copy as they go, lacking only seven text leaves and one blank. Of the 18 known copies, only two, the British Library and Pierpont, Pierpont Morgan copies, are complete. In spite of a quite reasonable estimate of 400,000 to 500,000 pounds, this book also was unsold. The rest of the sale did fairly well, and recently two sales in London have done very well. The Jacques Vellecoupe's uh, sale of the E.P. Goldschmidt stock did quite well in, at, at Christie's, and Alan Thomas's sale um, that was held, he was also a bookseller, held in London, did well. So there, there may be a light on the horizon. But even Americana may be slowing down somewhat. At Sotheby's in New York this May, a copy of the Dunlop, Dunlap broadside printing of the Declaration of Independence, I think there are 24 copies known, um, was offered. This was the same copy that had gotten such wide publicity two years ago for having been found in a picture frame and which had sold then for $2.2 million, Hammer, and which Sotheby's estimated now at 2 to $3 million. It failed to sell at that level, although it was sold by private treaty I think immediately after while the sale was still going on for a presumably lesser amount not divulged by Sotheby's. An additional factor over and above the relative emptiness of many pockets has come into play recently. In 1975 and 76, first Christie's and then Sotheby's began for the first time to charge a 10% surcharge to the buyers known as the buyer's premium, which created quite a stir at the time. But the dire prophecies that this would have a negative effect on their sales, on everybody's sales, were not fulfilled. Last fall, however, Sotheby's announced that it was raising its buyer's premium to 15% on all lots sold for $15,000 or less and on the first $50,000 of all higher value lots. And about three months later, Christie's followed suit. The results of the spring sales seem to indicate that the book market has been affected by the new premium. And again, even the sales of American historical autographs this past spring were less vibrant than they have been, while prices still were extremely strong and many top estimates, estimates were exceeded, the fireworks were somewhat more subdued than during the previous two seasons. Two years ago, in conclusion, in, in one of her whiz-bang book arts press lectures, Kathy Lieb spelled out a few reasons why librarians should try to keep in touch with the changing monetary values of their collections. This becomes truer every day. By knowing what one has, monetarily speaking, which requ requires staying abreast of developments in the constantly changing book market, it is obviously much easier to know what to hold on to and what to sell when a decision has to be made, has been made to deaccession. But in general, how does one stay, or if one is threatened by mainstreaming or whatever, by losing rare books collections altogether? But in general, how does one stay in touch with the market? In the first place, I would advise all rare book librarians to keep up their subscriptions to American Book Prices Current. Next year, they're supposed to go on CD-ROM, which would make life a lot easier. When one really needs to know the monetary value of a book or group of books, however, that's just the beginning. Since every copy is different, it is not enough to check prices in the auction records. Look at the catalogs if you can. Many details of condition or special points about the copy cannot and are not entered in the records. When we value a book at auction, we check descriptions of as many copies as we feel are necessary, since so many factors come into play in determining the relative value of a copy. They usually fit into three broad categories, binding, condition, and provenance. Copy of, uh, copy from, two copies from the same edition, I mean, of course, the same issue. Valuing books and the factors or circumstances that come into play in an auction and that affect the prices fetched at auction would be the subject of a lecture in itself and have been. 
Thus, not only are auction records not enough, but even the catalog descri descriptions cannot tell you the circumstances surrounding the sale which influenced the final results. Who was bidding, whether the dealers who were bidding were buying for, them for stock or were, were bidding on commission for collectors, whether the bidders included anonymous phone bidders who were often individuals buying for their own collections, and so on. If you're interested in any particular upcoming sale, and you can call au the auction houses to ask whether we have anything coming up in the area you're interested in, try to attend the sale or have someone attend for you. Don't hesitate to call us and ask for information or catalogs. We are always happy to help libraries and institutional clients, and we're not out to rob libraries of their treasures. It's up to the library's staff and trustees to make a responsible and carefully weighed decision to sell. The auction house is just one way to carry out this decision. When the auction method is chosen, we do our best to pursue the institution's interests as we do with all of our clients. If for one reason or another the sale of a book appears to us to be contrary to the institution's interest, we'll let them know just as we would with a, with a private client or an individual. Recently, for example, the Smithsonian sold a group of duplicates through Christie's. This included a copy of the first edition of Agostino Ramelli's Diversi et Artificiosi Machine, excuse my pronunciation, Paris 1588. Someone had overlooked a short statement included in a presentation inscription to the Smithsonian on the front flyleaf to the effect that the copy had been, quote, previously owned and probably used by Robert Fulton while perfecting his plans for the first steamboat in the Hudson River, which I discovered when cataloging the book. We called them and pointed this out to them immediately and asked whether they still wished to sell the book. They didn't and took it back. Manuscripts and association copies are generally not sold by institutions, as you all know. Right now, if a rare book librarian were to consider selling some books for his, from his or her institution's holdings, whether duplicate copies, a sticky issue, of course, or books that are extraneous to the library's collections and goals, it would be obvious that a few well-known color plate natural history books or any books on science important books on science, on science, would bring a lot more in relation to their value 10 or 20 years ago than would first editions of English or American literature, except for the very, very important well-known classics, or in textually, textually interesting but relatively obscure incunables or even fine bindings. Above all, if there's a need to sell and if you have any lonely American historical manuscripts that are gathering dust in your collections, now is the time to do so. For the books that I just mentioned, one could wait, as in spite of little rises and dips, there is a steady market for them. But in a field like American Autographs that has gone over the top to use some auction jingo, waiting could mean a very big lost opportunity to put money in your coffers. In conclusion, my advice to the librarians in the audience is again, call us with any questions, and for your own interest and instruction, try to make a habit of obtaining at least a rough idea of the values of the books for which you're responsible. Much as one may resist the idea, this is one aspect of the reality of books, and we've all been taught to examine every aspect of the books we're dealing with. It is an aspect that may change, but that never goes away, and awareness of it is crucial in times like these. Finally, I think that you'll find the values of books to be a maddening but endlessly fascinating subject of investigation. Thank you.